Hey, Rachel, what's Forge's mutation again? He's a super genius inventor. So a technopath like Madison Jeffries? No, Forge just tinkers with machines. He doesn't like talk to them or sex them up or anything. So what about the magic stuff? Oh, that's unrelated. Forge learned most of that from Naze. The old dude who fought the dire wraiths with Storm? Well, kind of. See, in that issue, Naze actually got killed and replaced by a dire wraith off-panel, and then possessed by something called the Adversary. The Adversary? Nominally a Cheyenne trickster figure, although I can't find any actual mythical analog for him. I mean, there are Cheyenne tricksters, but none of them really fit the adversary's description, so I assume he's comic-specific. Super bad, kind of the incarnation of chaos. Ouch. So how'd the adversary get to him? Well, Nazi had fought the adversary before, but he'd managed to lock it away. But unfortunately, Forge had freed it when he was in Vietnam. How'd he do that? Well, a bunch of soldiers under his command got killed in action. Oh, man. So in the middle of the battle, Forge used their souls to open a demon portal, which, among other things, released the adversary back into the world. What?! Hi, I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 45th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Now, originally, as you uh, could tell if you listened to the very end of our last episode, we were going to be talking about a whole mess of stuff uh, between Uncanny X-Men number 196 and 199. So Magneto, some Secret Wars 2 tie-ins, a murder mystery, Life Death 2. But then as we worked on it, and especially as we were talking through the outline, it became more and more evident to us that we really needed to shift things around and basically have an episode centered around Life, Death, 2, and Storm. Because it's an amazing story, it's an amazing character, and it's a very, very direct connection to a lot of other stuff going on that we really wanted to actually take the time to do right. Yeah, when we were talking about this over breakfast, you know, sort of planning the episode, we found that we just kept coming back to Life, Death, 2. And I mean, it's not that the other issues are bad by any means, they have some really good stuff, but this is just sort of head and shoulders above really anything around it, which if you remember our coverage of Life, Death, 1 back in uh, Chekhov's Raygun, one of our older episodes. That was episode 30. For those of you playing along at home, then you'll remember how much we like that one, and this is right up there with it. I actually like this one even more. I'm also going to qualify, as you can hear, my voice isn't all there this week. I'm also on a lot of narcotic cough suppressant. So it is possible that I will be either dramatically more or less entertaining than usual. We'll see. I feel like I should modify myself somehow to sort of go along with that, but I don't know which direction I'd go. I, I don't know, man. I mean, one of us needs to be able to drive home. Oh, okay, well. All right, so let's start with the narrative context of this. In X Men 185, which is about. A year and a half back from where we are right now, Storm lost her powers. Forge had invented a gun based on ROM Space Knight technology, long story, that ended up depowering Storm, even though it was intended to depower Rogue. Storm threw Rogue out of the way and took the hit that was intended for her. This is eventually going to turn out to have been temporary, but as far as we know now in the comics, and this is at X-Men 198 that we currently are, it's permanent. Storm has no powers. And so since then, Storm's really been kind of on a quest to redefine herself, or really just to understand herself. Now, she keeps getting derailed, which I find entertaining. Like, she's about to uh, sail away, and, like, all of a sudden, Kulan Gath turns Manhattan into the fantasy Middle Ages. Do you think most travel insurance covers that eventuality? Like, I missed my boat because New York turned into an age undreamed of. So... In X-Men 197, Storm did finally arrive in Africa. In X-Men 197, though, she is attacked by two total jerks. That's Andrea and Andreas Strucker, who are the descendants of Baron Strucker. They're his kids. Yes. Early on, shortly after Storm shows up, they're being really terrible, and Andreas is sort of uh, preparing to sexually assault a waitress in this sort of truck stop place, and Storm, you know, basically shows him up and shames him, and so they retaliate, yes, by tracking her down and shooting her in the head. That's where X-Men 198 opens, with Storm 
somewhere in East Africa. And I should point out this kind of ties to something that is a continual issue in comics, treating Africa as a country. In this case, all we know is Storm is somewhere in East Africa. But there's actually a reason for that, which is that she is really disoriented and she doesn't know where she is. Life, Death 1 and 2 are both really big on symbolism and metaphor. In Life, Death 2, that's one of the central points, which is Storm is really at sea. Well, not literally, you know, metaphorically. But she's lost both physically and psychologically in terms of her identity and her location. Now, we've mentioned that this is Life, Death 2. Let's take a minute and go back to Life, Death 1, which is what we're building on. That's X-Men 186. So here's the thing about this. This is a diptych of, of issues, two parts of a story that go together, and they are 12 issues apart. And I think that really works, because for Storm, it's not just a, hey, I had a bad thing happen. Now I will figure it out over two issues. Now I'm better. For her, this really is a journey, and for me, that's part of what makes it so believable. The fact that there are a dozen issues between her trying to define herself as a human without a connection to the Earth anymore in the way that she used to, and her really starting to realize that that's not enough, that she does need something more, that makes me really invested. If I had to sum them up thematically, I'd say that Life, Death 1 is about Storm mourning for who she was, and Life, Death 2 is about Storm figuring out who she still is and who she's going to go on to be. Again, when we were talking about this episode, when we decided we were going to focus on this, one of the reasons is that we realized Life, Death 1 and 2, more than any other story, had really defined Storm for us visually and narratively. And we've also noticed that Life, Death 2 in particular really seems to be the narrative foundation for a lot of current Storm, particularly G. Willow Wilson's X-Men and Greg Pak's Storm solo series. Yeah, and that's interesting because both of these stories, they're talking about a character who is so often defined by her powers, by this, this elemental control, this connection to all of the life and energy of Earth. And in both of these stories, she's without them. I find it almost surprising to look back and, and realize that fact. What these drive home for me in terms of defining Storm as a character is almost a little bit tautological. Storm has talked about seeing herself as someone whose personality, whose approach to life is very much defined by her powers. And I think what she comes to realize, especially over the course of Life, Death 2, is that to the same extent, those powers were defined by who she is. So with that in mind, let's jump into the story of Life, Death 2. The first page is actually probably my favorite page of the entire issue, and that's because it's just such a perfect callback to the first page of Life, Death 1. Now, in Life, Death 1, we see Storm unconscious or at least depressed enough that she might as well be in these tangled up sheets naked underneath them with just the caption, Once upon a time, there was a woman who could fly. And this, remember, is immediately after she was depowered. In Life, Death 2, on the other hand, she's walking along a plane. She's wearing this billowy robe that is a very, very texturally evocative of those sheets. And the caption here instead is, Once upon a time, there was a woman who could fly. Now I walk, just like plain folks. And that second part is also a reference back to Life, Death 1, because at one point, Forge derisively says that now she has to walk, just like plain folks. And this is during uh, one of the many fights that they have. The shift from the third to first person in that opening seems really significant to me, because again, Life, Death 2 is all about Storm reclaiming agency. So she's caught in a sandstorm. And I want to talk about that too, because again, the symbolism of starting with Storm being overwhelmed by hostile weather. This is what you don't have anymore. This is what you've lost. And this is what now you are no longer a part of in the way that you were. She has been shot. She is delusional at this point, And she believes that she can push back the sandstorm, that she can block it out. And she does briefly, and the sky's clear, and everything is blue, and she tries to fly, realizing that her powers are back. 
And then reality snaps back, she falls on her face, and the sandstorm is right back there. Now, one thing that's also interesting here is that Storm, especially in the first half of Life Death 2, is almost naked. She just has this robe that's really, I think it's really more like a cloak that's just loosely wrapped around her and is being blown around by the wind. What interests me here is that while there's a lot of skin being shown, it's not really at all sexualized. I mean, Storm, yes, is a very attractively drawn character, but that's by no means the focus of what we're seeing here. You're absolutely right, and I want to jump on this because it's a really good segue to something else I want to talk about about the art in these two issues. These are both drawn by Barry Windsor Smith, who is mm-hmm. a phenomenal artist. He's a guy who's most associated, I think, popularly with his run on Conan, an equivalent fantasy and barbarian comics, stuff like Cull, and also with a Weapon X series that he drew. For me, Life Death, and particularly Life Death 2, are kind of the definitive Barry Windsor Smith works. Yeah, I would definitely agree. We're going to be putting a bunch of art up on the As Mentioned page. More than usual, I would encourage you, if you can get to them, they're on Marvel Unlimited. They've been collected in a bunch of different forms to track down the actual issues and read them because they're beautiful and they're also just phenomenal examples of comic storytelling. And one of the things that Windsor Smith does really beautifully has to do with bodies and nudity. So in Life Death 1, there's a lot about Storm coming into and thinking about sexuality and femininity and falling for Forge. It's a love story in which she very explicitly considers and reconfigures and frames herself as a sexual entity following the loss of her powers And she is explicitly sexy in a lot of it. In Life, Death 2, you'll probably see more of her body, and it's a lot less sexual. There's this thing in superhero comics that makes me absolutely nuts. Not just superhero comics, actually. Visual media in general, which is the idea that women have to be sexy all the time. The most egregious examples of this... Oh, the sexy dead girls? Yeah, sexy dead girls. You see women who are horribly injured or maimed or hurt or dead and have sprawled in perfect tits and ass pinup poses. My definitive oh my god is a Xenoscope comic that involves a woman naked in a bathtub after a suicide attempt, and it looks like porn plus blood. It's really fucked up. Xenoscope is perhaps a bit more guilty of such things than many publishers are. Yeah, but you know what? The first place that I saw this really publicly called out was a DC comic, not only with a female superhero, but a teenager, The Death of Stephanie Brown. Yeah. And the thing is... I object to this stuff as, you know, a human being and a feminist, but not as much as I object to it as an editor. It's incredibly poor storytelling. If people are sexy all the time, then sexiness and sexuality and objectification don't mean anything. Barry Windsor Smith doesn't do that. And so in in Life, Death 1, when Storm does stand like a pinup, when she does stand in ways that are supposed to be accentuating her body... That's part of the story, and he's got this range of storytelling tools that he would not have access to if he just defaulted to that. Right. If it actually means something, if it's not the standard, I completely agree, then at that point that tells the reader, hey, you should pay attention to this. This is a relevant storytelling point. This isn't just, oh, look, it's a woman, and therefore someone who is sexy. It's like Cyclops looking through his Ruby Quartz vision. It's like if you had a sexy visor and everything was just sexy, and then I guess you shot sexy blasts out of your eyes? No, it would be a sexy beam, like in Silent Hill 3. (laughs) And you know, actually, while we're here, let's just talk about Barry Windsor Smith's art, because oh my god. Yeah, seriously. Now, the the run of Uncanny X-Men so far, that's been uh, John Romita doing the art on that. And Romita is fine. He's a totally serviceable, good artist, but the contrast between him and Barry Windsor Smith here is just night and day. I don't know if Barry Windsor Smith would be my pick for the artist for the stories that Ramita's telling. Yeah, I completely um, agree. Like pure superhero stories, probably not so much. But it's really hard to imagine that anyone else could have told the two halves of Life Death the way Barry Windsor Smith did. He's an incredibly detailed and textured and toothy draftsman, but he's also very, very fluid. The sense of motion in his comics, and especially the sense of motion of bodies relative to space, is just superlative. 
And one of the things I find really interesting about his work in Life Death is that Life Death and Life Death 2, they're both stories where there's not a lot of uh, action as we traditionally think of it in a superhero book. They're both really all about character dynamic, internal emotional growth and relationships and conversations. And he manages to make them so just dynamic and engaging just through posture, through body language, through even facial expression, and through the framing of the characters on the page. And through backgrounds and layouts, the settings of these two stories are really different, and the settings are both critical to the stories. Life Death 1 takes place in Forge's house, which is this techno-utopia. A lot of it's holographic. It's a very sort of futuristic home and setting. And Life Death 2 is all in the deserts and plains and one particular village of East Africa. And it's it's all organic where Forge's home is all like, you know, smooth lines and technology. It's it's the exact inverse. The way he draws backgrounds in this, there are two ways that you could do this. One of them is the Wolverine gag where you just do a total whiteout. You focus on the lack of visibility. It's an amazing illustration of things that comics can do and ways that you can use comics to sort of think outside of that box. The other approach is what Barry Windsor Smith does which is to make the background detailed and really focus on the texture, the background, the swirls of the sandstorm. The way he draws nothing, this sounds so strange, um, the background and the environment and the air around storm and the way it interacts with the bodies and the figures is something that is incredibly rare and incredibly well executed, both in terms of conveying motion and background and in terms of just the progressions across any given page. And I think, once again, everything is thematically appropriate in this issue, and that's very much the case here, because, of course, Aurora would be incredibly aware of all of the nature around her, both the weather and the ground under her feet, the trees and mountains in the distance. Like, this was her vocabulary for so long, and now that it's not, how could she not notice it as something admittedly, yes, very alien and distant, but still completely present? Portraying the world through the eyes of a character who sees it very differently from the way that any reader is going to be able to is so difficult, and it's executed just so beautifully here. Absolutely. But it's not all trees and sandstorms, although honestly, if Smith was drawing it, then I'd probably be fine with that. Because what happens next after Storm, like we were saying, falls on her face after briefly believing she can fly again, is that Forge appears here in the East African desert. And Forge yells at her, you know, tells her she's hallucinating, she needs to pull it together, she needs to keep going or she's going to die. Forge is the voice of pragmatism. He's the guy who in Life Death 1 was the person who was all about grounding her back in reality. Here, he's all about getting her to keep moving and returning her to the real world that she's slipping out of. And it's interesting, A, that she pulls him into her delusion that way as this very productive, defending kind of figure. Um, but it's also interesting that she still rejects him. She's still so mad at Forge in the real world for realizing he was responsible for depowering her and then lying to her about it as she was falling in love with him that she still says, basically, screw you, man. I don't want to have anything to do with you after what you did. Well, it's a literal re rejection of Forge, but I think symbolically it's also at this point a rejection of pragmatism. It's a rejection of acknowledgement of her limits. She can't accept that right now and yet. And yet, of course, at this point, as she does reject those limitations— she is attacked by a pit viper, just this giant toothy snake, which Windsor Smith draws really well yeah, as well. Yeah, Barry Windsor Smith draws super pretty snakes. Who knew? She throws it off. She's not sure if she's been bitten or not. She thinks she has and realizes that she's going to die. And so she finds a nearby cave figuring, well, at least let me die somewhere peaceful. And that's where she sees the X-Men. We mentioned that there are a lot of callbacks or a lot of parallel points in current Storm-centric stories. If you're following um, G. Willow Wilson's run on X-Men, whether or not it's deliberate, I don't know. 
This scene is very directly echoed in the scene where she hallucinates Wolverine in the cavern underground in, I think, X-Men 23. Uh, the first issue of, of Willow's run, yeah. Here she actually sees what's interesting is it's the X-Men from the old days. I mean, in current continuity that we're covering, the X-Men are in sort of a strange lineup. They're being led by Nightcrawler and, you know, Rogue and Kitty are there and Colossus, uh, Rachel Summers. But this is the X-Men as Storm remembers them from before things got super weird. It's Colossus, Nightcrawler, Professor Xavier, Kitty, Cyclops, Phoenix, and Wolverine. I gotta say, I love the way Barry Windsor Smith draws Phoenix specifically. Yeah, and this is, to clarify, Jean Grey, not Rachel Summers, who is about to become the new Phoenix in the the coverage that we're doing. we'll be getting to that in a few episodes. And so, yeah, Storm just sort of talks to a number of the characters in turn. She talks to Jean about how much she regrets not being able to save her, how much she feels like she's failed, and Jean reassures her that, you know, the decisions that she, Jean, made were the decisions that she needed to make, and it's okay, and Aurora was a dear friend. She talks to Wolverine, who offers to basically kill her and give her peace if that's what she really wants. And honestly, that's something I could see Wolverine doing, being like, well, hey, it's your decision, and I respect you, so what do you want to do? She also talks to Xavier, and this is the part that I find is most interesting, because what he basically does is somewhat gently berate her, saying, hey, I understand you're afraid, and that's why I took you out of this comforting cradle when you were a goddess in Africa. I took you someplace that was going to be out of your element so you could actually grow so you wouldn't be a child forever. And that's finally what snaps her back to reality. She wakes up, and, well, she's still alive, so clearly the snake didn't bite her, but there it is again. And she just looks at it, sort of more more peaceful this time, and waits and says... The snake is much a part of life and the natural order of things as I, deserving the same fundamental respect, neither more nor less to be feared. And this is a relationship with nature we really haven't seen with Storm since she lost her powers. And this right here, I think, is the very beginning of the journey that she's going on inside her own mind, inside her identity in Life Death too. Now, shortly after this, she is forced again to deal with the very direct reality because she comes upon a crashed bus in the desert with only one survivor. And that's a very young woman named Shani, who's also very, very pregnant. Storm realizes quickly that A, Shani's the only survivor, and B, she's going to need to take care of her if she's going to survive, because Shani's not going to be able to get anywhere on her own. And one thing that I find really interesting here, Shani mentions that she's cold, and Aurora, of course, is only wearing this cloak robe thing, and she opens that robe up to bring Shani into it so they can share body heat. And once again, this could be portrayed very easily by a lesser artist, um, or a lesser writer for that matter, as something very sexual, like, ooh, look, girls. But it's really not. The overwhelming feel is Storm as this mother figure, this protector, this nurturer, and it just comes across so beautifully in just one panel. I'm going to say specifically Aurora as those things, because Storm is in a region where she was worshipped as a goddess based on her powers. And this is, again, Storm figuring out how much of that stuff is her powers and how much of it is her, how much of that identity and how much of that relationship to the people around her. And so she and Shani talk as they travel, and Shani tells Storm what her deal's been. Basically, she went to the city with the uh, father of her child, and he wasn't a bad guy, but he didn't really love her. And so now she's coming home to the village she grew up in because she wants her child to have that connection to its origin. Obviously, this is a very direct parallel, and Storm is aware enough to see it. I love the way she sort of analyzes what's going on in her own head in relation to Shani. Deep down inside, I always believed it would be safer staying the way I was rather than trying something new. Growth meant change, and change carried with it the risk of being hurt. 
What a sham I was. Storm, the paragon of virtue and courage, the serene goddess who soared above the common herd, untouched and untouchable, who oh so nobly denied herself any decent heartfelt emotions because they might affect her control over the weather, and she feared bring harm and suffering to others, so convenient a sacrifice. I made myself immune from what I considered petty feelings and yearnings and desires, when in truth I was really fleeing as hard and fast as I could from my own humanity. And this is the storm I love. She's conflicted, she's self-doubting, but she's always nonetheless noble and regal and passionate, even at her lowest. She's a character that doesn't really ever do anything halfway. Her emotions and her goals, everything she does, it's always right out there. This is the storm who, when she was scared and when she felt exposed found safety by running away and becoming a goddess. You know, you said Storm never does things by halves. That takes me in a direction that I've been thinking about a lot lately in, in light of both the current movie news and, and writing more about X-Men Evolution, and that's adaptations of Storm. She's a character who has never been done well in an adaptation. She's never been done well on screen. Yeah, I, th I think you're totally right. I mean, I, you know, sometimes are obviously worse than others. But, you know, you look at a character like, say, Beast. He's adapted well all the time. Yeah, there's not a bad Beast. Right. But with Storm, I think I think what it is, it's, it's hard to really get an elevator pitch for. It's like, here's a lady from Africa who controls the weather. Sure. But that doesn't capture any of the stuff that we're talking about here. That doesn't capture any of the character's decades of brilliant, brilliant evolution. So I thought about this. And I thought about, you know, the versions there are. And the closest to the comics, the one who I can most identify as the storm I know and the storm I love, is weirdly the super histrionic one from the 90s animated series. I kind the one of, who will meet you at the monorail! I, I kind of buy that, and that's the reason why, because she's just always, like, turned up to 11. She's always just a little bit removed and almost inhuman in a way that I think captures that kind of intensity with every other storm with the movies with storm and x-men evolution with storm and wolverine and the x-men which is such a shame because it's so good otherwise is that they dial her back they try to humanize her and they specifically try to humanize her by taking away that intensity that's the consistent quality that defines her not just as a superhero but as a person yeah and i have to say like uh, what is it alexandra ship that's going to be playing storm in the yeah, new movie alexandra ship i really hope she reads life death and life death too if she reads nothing else because these two issues they just they are storm like if you ever wanted a character study of storm to be summarized in two single floppies it's these right here you know because of that i have so much trouble with the idea of her as a teenager in the upcoming movie like that's the thing i'm most worried about it's not the casting it's not the previous versions it's making her a teenager without the context of her as that adult it's important in adaptations to go in and realize that this isn't going to be comic storm this is a different character it has to be a different character to better serve the medium and the context of the story that's being told around it you have to accept that for most characters i can handle that but for storm i'm worried because we have never seen her distilled we've always seen her diluted and I mean, now that we finally have the opportunity to start anew, I mean, you know, Rachel, you and I have both been very upfront that we did not like Halle Berry as Storm in the movies. No, she was terrible. And so I feel like, you know, this is our chance, and I really want to make sure we get it right, because Ship is probably going to be playing Storm for the next, you know, large number of X-Men movies. But I think this is also very, very much about how the character is written and directed and how her backstory is played in. Like, there are teenage Storm stories that are really good, but they all exist framed within that adult narrative and within specifically that transition from thief to goddess to superhero to person. Mm -hmm. For me, that's the Storm elevator pitch, that that's the order she did it in. Yeah, I like that a lot. Well, okay, so let's say let's say we are doing an adult Storm in a theoretical X-Men movie. Who's your dream casting? I have been waiting for like 10 years for someone to ask this because it's been the same person <laughs> since like 1998, and that is Tanya Moody. The thing I first saw her in, the thing that convinced me that she was my storm, was the BBC Neverwhere miniseries where she played Hunter. She's got 
that intensity. She's got that passion, even without being overdramatic, without being overblown. She is so intense and collected and concentrated as a performer. You know, I was going to go and say my own answer, but it's actually the exact same answer. I completely agree. Damn Skippy. Oh, I, I don't, I'm not sure how old she is at this point, because the Neverwhere miniseries is pretty old. She's not a teenager, but neither is Storm. Damn it. So here's what I want. for. I want to see Life, Death 1 and 2 uh, adapted into a two-part animated film, or maybe like two animated films. You have the art be very, very Barry Windsor Smith, this deliberately chosen palette, almost minimal movement. The kind of original comics art influence thing that you see like in the Hellboy animated stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, because those are not Mike Mignola's art, but they really capture the feel of it. I, I'm sure this will never happen, but if it was going to, that would be a beautiful, beautiful thing. The other thing I'd really love to see with Life, Death 1 and 2 is an artist's edition, similar to the ones that um, that IDW has been putting out, the big 11 by 17 facsimiles oh, of, with the, the, original of the original pages, because... The colors are beautiful in this, and there's not a colorist credited, at least in Life, Death 2, which makes me think that Windsor Smith did his own colors, I'm not sure. And and again, Windsor Smith's line art is so beautiful that color always feels to me like it kind of detracts. It's the same deal with, with Walter Simonson, who does have a beautiful artist edition of his Thor books, which you should look up if you haven't seen it, because it's awesome. And oh, yeah. when I got it, I literally spent like two hours just like weeping over John Workman's lettering grids. <laughs> so cool. But yeah, the, the line art and the draftsmanship is so beautiful. And I'm looking at it in this, this essential edition, which is black and white, but it's on newsprint and it's comic size. And I just, man, I just want it to be huge. I want to see those brush strokes. Totally. But anyway, I feel like we could go on forever about this and we should continue with the story of Life, Death 2. Right. Okay. So Storm and Jenny head back to the village and it's barren and desolate. There are rusting machines all around. And it's obvious that this is, this is all from the last few years. And Shani is shocked as well. Okay, now I do want to say, I don't know if this is actually accurate for what anything is even remotely like in East Africa, either in terms of the geography or in terms of the culture that we're going to see coming up, but I will say it's beautiful, both thematically and visually. You know, I actually want to talk about that for a sec. There are a couple things that I wish that we were better positioned to discuss, better informed to discuss, because I feel like they're really important, they're really relevant to this, and I don't feel like either of us is really bringing the frame of reference that we would need to to discuss these things usefully. The first is the cultural groundings of this village that she comes to, because I don't know whether it's intended to represent a specific region or not. And I'd really like to because it matters. And the second is specifically the grounding of this story in post-colonial and uh, diaspora literature, because I feel like yeah. it's very tightly tied to that. I'd love to talk to somebody who has more of a perspective on that, because yes, we are we are very white and very American and very ignorant in this regard. The places where we can talk about this usefully are not this specific one at all. Right. So anyway, the characters, uh, Aurora and Shani, continue into the village, and uh, Shani's parents, they don't really say much, but the elder, Mijanari, I'm going to say Mijanari, we might be mangling that. M-J-N-A-R-I. Yes. Uh, and he welcomes them, offering them water, salt, bread, and fire. Once it's clear that Shani's going to be safe, Aurora just collapses. Because after all the stuff she's been through, like, she's finally, finally safe, I definitely would too. In fact, I probably would have collapsed about four issues ago. Yeah, I think most of us would have. Storm is significantly more hardcore than any of us, period, forever. Absolutely. And so she wakes up after having been sleeping for a while to one of the villagers, uh, the elder, I believe, saying that Shani's baby won't come, and she's asking for Aurora. She's asking for Storm. Storm's like, well, I'm not a midwife. I don't know how to do this. And the elder says, well, nonetheless, she's asking for you. And Storm looks outside and sees the villagers dancing to propitiate the spirits. It becomes clear as the characters talk. She says, A hospital would be of more use. 
And he replies, we have no vehicle, Aurora. And even if transportation was sent us, Shani wouldn't survive the trip. I love those fuck you and fuck your paternalism moments because this is really important in terms of portrayals of Africa in comics and in, in Western literature in general, because so often you see, oh, you know, they're doing this because they're, you know, cute and primitive. And no, this is framed in a group of people who are well damn aware that she needs to be in a hospital, but they don't have access to that and they know it. And so they're just doing everything they can. They're, they're using what they have available, which in this case is spirituality and the stranger who has just arrived. The acknowledgement that the culture that she is interacting with exists in a larger context than her story is, I think, critical and is something that is overwhelmingly and unfortunately absent from scenes like this. So it's it's really nice to see it here. Absolutely. So, yeah, Shani is uh, having this very difficult childbirth, and so Aurora does what she can. And there's this wonderful page intercutting between these thin vertical panels of villagers dancing and of Storm just doing her damnedest to deliver Shani's child. And there's just this sense of, of pace and tension and really of music and rhythm that I think the dance panels really bring through that just brings you straight into the narrative. It makes you feel really invested and connected and present. Yeah, there's a scene actually that this reminds me a lot of, or I guess that reminds me a lot of this chronologically from um, the Finder graphic novel Voice by Carlos Speed McNeil. I can totally see like that, right yeah. Right the last chapter. Mm-hmm. And so the baby is in fact born, but it's not breathing. So Storm gives the child CPR. The kid does live. She is successful against all odds. Be merciful, bright lady. Smile on this woman and her son as I do. I cannot help myself. Joy bubbles within me like champagne, making me giddy with delight. That's such a good callback. Oh my God. Yes, it absolutely is. Because there's this whole thing with champagne and life death one. And it's also just so such a relief to to see Storm finally happy after all of these things she's been through, after all just this psychological trauma and also having Manhattan turn into a medieval area, that too. But it's just, it's very refreshing, I think. But the life death stories are fables. In the style of fables and fairy tales, nothing is ever free. And so, yes, as the baby is born, Mijnari the Elder sort of starts taking off his ceremonial vestments, his, you know, his robes and his his headpiece and starts to walk away, and the music becomes more sad, Aurora's narration describes. And so she follows him, saying, hey, what's going on here? And he says, well, you saw the broken down machinery. You've seen how arid this land is. We used to farm on a small scale, and it was really difficult. We made it work. People came in with machines. It was helpful, but we were reliant on outside resources and technology. Those broke down. People abandoned this. We needed more fertilizer, more fuel. And by the time we no longer had access to them, the old ways were gone. And again, I feel like storm number three is, is in a lot of ways kind of life death three, just in terms of the things that it very directly calls back to and follows up on. And this is honestly what storm number three is about. Absolutely. And so Mishnari says, so basically the deal is now we know exactly how many people that can be sustained with the land as it is and with our resources and skills as they are. So that means a child has been born, which means it's time for someone to leave the village, for someone to die. And it's clear that he's talking about himself. He says, The balance must be maintained. As the land heals, so will we. Only this time we will learn from our mistakes. We will treat it with respect and care. It may be that man is master of the world, but it is a foolish master who whips and beats and works his servant unto death, especially when their lives are bound together. Our way was not altogether good, any more than the Outlanders was bad. We were just too young and foolish, as they were arrogant, to use it properly. 
Willow talked about this when she was on the podcast, but it seems bizarre to me that people haven't done more with Storm and ecologically themed stories. What this says to me, it's implying that Storm needs to be this sort of bridge between the worlds of technology and the worlds of the ancient ways. And I think there's certainly something valid to be said there. I mean, it's actually pretty textual at the end of this story. That's what Mishnari's sort of echoing voice says to her. But for me, I think it's really less about her role in the world and more about her role inside of herself, her role inside her own identity. You know, we see her start to discover herself as just this non-powered, very human person in Life Death One, as a woman and as a non-divine, non-mutant being. We see her start to remember her connection to the lands, to the earth, to life itself in Life Death Two, but the fact is neither of those is Storm. Those are both just parts of Storm. Those are both components. And the whole character, the multifaceted, nuanced, complex character that is Aurora Monroe, she has to have all of those things or else she's always going to feel incomplete, both to herself as a character and to us as readers. Storm is, I think, more than any of the X-Men, a really fundamentally liminal figure. And so in stories like this, and this is something that Greg Pak explored in a lot of his Storm series, walking that very delicate line between liminality and identity tourism absolutely just between between worlds between selves between ideas right between classes between identities between you know the thief superhero goddess she is such a phenomenal and natural lens for exploring african diaspora and for grounding that in superhero comics and she's so rarely been used well that way i mean mcduffie's done a little bit of it with the stuff that overlapped with black panther obviously and i think it's also telling that not a lot of black writers have had the freedom where they could really go in that direction with Storm because like she is a character situated so precisely at that intersection. These are stories that should be told more and they should be being told with a character this prominent. Absolutely. And so, yeah, after all of this, Mishnari does die. He just sort of wills himself to death. And Aurora does, for the first time, find understanding and find peace. Refuse, then. Crawl back into your cave. Flee from duty and responsibility. It is easily done, a path you have already walked. But if I truly craved that oblivion, I would have let Wolverine kill me in the cave or will myself to death as Mishnari did on this hilltop. I have found my home. It is the whole of the world, and with it, my reason for being. And there's just this beautiful last page of Storm with her arms turned toward the sky, just out there in the wilderness, in the weather. And it's her again. She looks like Storm for the first time in ages. And once again, it's just, it's immensely cathartic. So that's Life Death 2 at Uncanny X-Men number 198, and we cannot encourage you enough, listeners. If you haven't read Life Death 1, if you haven't read Life Death 2, and you're interested in Storm, do it. You are not going to find better Storm stories. And we'll come back to more of the Uncanny stuff that's around this, but we just, we really wanted to have a chance to focus on basically a critical arc for a critical character. And we've mentioned that this is our definitive Storm. These are the stories that really defined the character for us. That's also, to some extent, a product of when we read them. And so we're curious, you know, because everyone's got those different definitive moments. And we'd love it if you told us a little bit about that. Maybe we can do a collection of those on the blog. Yeah, that would be rad. Or just jump into the comments when this episode goes up either way. Yeah, favorite storm stories, definitive issues, what you would recommend to someone who really wanted to grasp the core of this character as you see her. Uh, But meanwhile, I believe we have some questions. Okay, an anonymous listener on Tumblr says, Black History Month seems like a good time to ask, what the hell is with the X-Men's diversity issue? It seems like every time they get a woman of color on the team who isn't Storm, she vanishes. I started reading in the 90s, and I remember how excited I was to see Cecilia Reyes on comic covers because she looked like me, but after a few issues, she was suddenly gone. The closest the team has come to diverse females might be Marjorie Lou's Astonishing, but that's only if you count Warbird as a person of color. 
I think the current run of Adjectiveless X-Men, the one that G. Willow Wilson is writing, is actually pretty great about that. Um, of the five main characters, all of whom are female, only one of them is actually white, and that's Rachel Summers. Because you also have Storm, who is partially Kenyan. You have Psylocke, who's, well, that's complicated, but that japanese is, that is That is complicated, but Psylocke, who appears to be Japanese. And you have uh, M, who's Monegasque and Algerian, Jubilee's Chinese-American. So that's actually pretty rad. And that, I enjoy the fact that I think it's very organic. It's great. But as far as um, black female characters in X-Men, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. There really aren't that many. So there's Storm, of course, and there's Cecilia. But beyond that, there's, let's see, there's Chimera, but she's Storm's daughter. And she's only really appeared tangential to time travel stories. And there's Bling, and while she is black, her skin's rocky to the point where she doesn't really look like it. There's Frenzy, who we don't see very often. Which is a shame. Man, Frenzy is one of my favorite unused X-Men characters. Oh, yeah. I love her so much. Joanna Cargill. And there's uh, Shard, but she's also there in relation to a male character, Bishop mainly, because she's a sister. And Edie Okonkwo, I think she's actually probably one of the best examples of a prominent female black character in modern X-Men continuity, because yeah. she's been very focal. And she's also a character who, in context of whom intersectional issues of national identity and origin, race and mutant identity have actually been addressed pretty directly with varying degrees of efficacy and success. There's a lot of discussion specifically that I will try to find links to about her appearance and her, her portrayal in the comics, her hair and how that relates to the character's relationship to her origins and her mutant powers, which is interesting. really, really, really yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. But yeah, I definitely agree. We need more black female characters. We need more black characters in general, more non-white characters in general. I think it's gradually getting better as time goes on, but it could always be better still. And what Marvel is doing more and more, and I want to see them keep doing, is basically saying fuck you to the people who treat white and male as defaults, because that's not the world we live in. The <laughs> sadly, the makeup of the X-Men does actually reflect the area where Miles and I live. We live in Portland, Oregon, which is one of the most racially homogenous metropolitan cities in the United States yeah. because Oregon had super horrifying exclusion laws into the 50s and 60s. Its history reflects that, but it's not reflective of San Francisco or New York or any of the areas where the X-Men are set or where most of the characters are from. And it's ridiculous. I think what we're seeing more and more is editors and writers asking the correct question, which is not... Why should we put more black characters on the team, but why shouldn't we? Exactly. Very well put. Carl Horn asks on our blog, Has there been an X-Men story that contemplated the merits of the solution that Storm found to her existence before Xavier recruited her? It was sort of the inverse of the superstitious mob pursuing Kurt. Use human superstition in a more benign way and set yourself up to be regarded as a goddess instead of a demon. I think we actually saw some of this around Joseph, Magneto's clone. A uh, little bit, and I mean, uh, Cable and uh, Nate Gray have both been sort of spiritual central figures yeah, in their own time. And the whole Ascani cult and its relationship to the Phoenix Force and, and the various you know cults and movements that have risen around the, the Phoenix Force, usually it's presented as a negative. Um, so, for example, Haven, you know, Apocalypse, of course, Selene, Exodus, kind of. And you see it rise up, but again, almost always in, in context, really presented positively in the way that Storm is. It's more often treated as a supervillain manipulating uh, vulnerable populations. Yeah, which I mean, I guess that type of story would, would have to involve a type of deception unless you wanted to create like an actual divinity within the comic, which I think a lot of writers are hesitant to jump onto unless it's Asgard or something. But yeah, I would love to see a story about that. I'd love to see X-Men or even another Marvel Universe book go there. On our blog, David M. asks... So Aurora was the finest beggar in Cairo at six and a half years old. Has she ever run a con or otherwise used these skills since? I want Grifter Storm so bad. 
Also, is this involved in her taking on the goddess identity? That whole transition from successful, self-reliant criminal to agreeing at some level you're a divine being is kind of nuts unless it's a scam. So uh, we've definitely seen Aurora use her, her thief skills a lot, her skills from that portion of her life. I think that the example that always uh, occurs to me is when they're being tied up by Magneto's nanny bot and turned into helpless infants, which I is I thought we weren't going to talk about that again. Okay, well, anyway, we'll stop there. Um, but yeah, she does use her lockpicking to get out of there. And we see that here and there as well. Of course, after she loses her memory, after the whole Siege Perilous thing and meets up with Gambit, she is once again back to being a thief on the streets of Cairo, I believe. And you later see the two characters team up in Curse of the Mutants to uh, break into Vampire Island using their thiefy skills. But even in those stories, I feel like Gambit is much more the grifter and Storm is much more the pickpocket. And I think that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, we do see the pickpocket skills, but as far as her sort of pulling cons grifter style, that's never really been a Storm thing. Now, we may be missing something here. There may have actually been that story, but I can't really think of any. So pickpocket stuff, yes, con, no. Yeah, as a rule, Storm is not subtle and she's not deceptive. She is, again, turned up to 11. She is what and who she is, and you deal with it on those terms or not at all. So at this point, we're going to take a moment to thank some of the folks. This is an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the rewards that comes with some tiers of Patreon support is thanks from a variety of people who do or don't exist. And so I am going to turn it over this round to uh, Sebastian Shaw, Black King of the Hellfire Club. Celine, Ms. Frost, Mr. DaCosta, thank you for joining me. As you know, the Hellfire Club seeks any advantages available in our quest for pure financial and political power. Four individuals have presented themselves as worthy contributors to that goal. I hereby present for approval Kira Gecko and Todd Enoch as candidates for Black and White Bishop, and Megan and Tim Soule as candidates for Black and White Rook. They could serve this organization well in the coming days. And if not, well, we'll simply have them killed. And on that cheerful note, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, rachelandmiles.com. You should also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, vaults of X-Men evolution, and much, much more. This podcast is totally listener-supported, and it's made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. Thank you all so very much, as always. If you'd like to become a supporter, please check out the link at the top of our website. Next week, we are going to be checking back in with our dear old friend, the one and only Maximum Rocker, as the New Mutants find themselves in the arena. <laughs> <laughs>